0: Displacement. Creative displacement is good for us all. Let's pray together. Mighty, wondrous, and loving God, we ask now for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit upon our dear congregation so that the scriptures we've just heard might come alive for us and become your living word. Addressing us in ways we didn't expect, changing parts of us we never imagined needed changing, and leading us to new places we never expected to go. We pray this in the, in the name of Christ, amen. It is the wailing of police sirens, police sirens that first brings Elisha's neighbors out of their homes. They soon catch sight of a long, long line of limousines and Humvees, swiftly approaching through the hills of Samaria. Then, with wheels squealing and chrome flashing, this procession comes to a screeching halt right in front of the home of the prophet Elisha. Elite troops wearing shades and Kevlar vests quickly fan out to secure the whole area talking into their headsets, waving their machine guns, and pushing back the gathering crowd. Naaman, the great Syrian war hero, sits alone. Alone. In the back seat of his limo, waiting for the same kind of red card red carpet treatment he received in the capital of Syria. You know, servants running out, court officials bowing down to the ground, and the king of Israel himself coming out to welcome him. But there's no VIP treatment here. In fact, no one even comes out at first. Finally, finally someone comes shuffling out of Elisha's front door, (laughs) strolls over to Naaman's limo, taps on his tinted window. And after Naaman lowers it, the messenger peers in and delivers this terse message. Go bathe in the Jordan River seven times and then your ravaged skin will be made clean. And then he ambles back to the house, and the door swings shut. Stunned and humiliated, Naaman flies into a rage. Is this any way to treat a five-star general who just, by the way, recently trounced your own people in battle? I mean, how about a little R E S P E C T? How about a little coming out in person, waving your hands, invoking God's name over my tormented body? Or at the very least, how about telling me to go wash in one of Syria's great rivers instead of that puny crick called the Jordan? Finally, a close aide approaches Naaman's open window, and from a safe distance, because he fears contagion, he quietly asks, Commander, with all uh, due respect, if he told you to do something really difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So why not do something really simple? And the truth is, Naaman, for all of his power and his wealth, is desperate. He's desperate. He has become totally isolated as festering sores and gruesome lesions have spread over his whole body. He's now a social pariah, quarantined in his own life of luxury. In fact, he has a whole stash of silver and gold in his trunk, worth $4 million today apparently, to be given to the very first person who can set him free from his prison of loneliness and misery. Truth be told, he'll do anything, even even a silly bathing ritual in the Jordan River. And so Naaman orders his whole entourage to head east down to the Jordan. They stop there at a deserted place, and Naaman walks down to the water with his team following at their usual distance. And then, after Naaman immerses himself once, and then twice, and then finally seven times, all his blisters and boils suddenly vanish. And in stunned silence, he slowly touches his restored skin. And then he leaps up, up onto the banks of the Jordan and ecstatically shows everyone his healed body. They joyfully embrace him and for the first time in months, he now feels the touch of other human beings. A second healing. A second healing. Naaman now races back to Elisha's village. The experience, the experience of his desperate need, being met by God's grace and healing, now leads to the conversion of this Syrian outsider. Now I know, he tells Elisha, that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. But here's the thing, Naaman still has a lot to learn. Still has a lot to learn and to understand about what he's just confessed, don't we all? I mean, he now asks for two loads of dirt to take back home with him. Do you know why? He thinks that God can only be worshipped on Jewish soil. So bring it back with you to Syria. And he still has a lot to learn about what it means to pledge his full allegiance to God. Don't we all? He now asks Elisha for God's forgiveness when he later needs to go home and help his king bow down to his pagan god. Did you catch that? And I'm wondering, does the prophet Elisha maybe realize how much Naaman still has to learn and understand, and that it's maybe going to take him a whole lifetime to learn it. Either way, there seems to be an incredible amount of grace in Elisha's response. Giving neither permission nor condemnation, Elisha simply tells Naaman now to go home in peace. To go home in shalom. Two years ago here at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. In our series on learning how to read the Bible through the eyes of Jesus. Do you remember that? It was uh, the spring of 2014. 2014. We learned and saw together how God's whole salvation story sweeping through the Bible reaches its culmination, its Mount Everest, in Jesus. He, Jesus, is the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He radically clarifies for us who God is. God is love. And he radically clarifies for us how to read the Bible. Again and again, he challenges us to see God's deeper purposes in biblical events and to see how they all fit together in God's larger sweeping salvation story. And so today it's especially fascinating that we get the chance to hear the story of Naaman and then to hear Jesus talk about it. We don't always have that opportunity. And this is exactly what is happening today in Jesus' inaugural sermon. Standing before us in the Nazareth synagogue, he reveals That the story of Naaman and the story of the widow of Zarephath, both of them by the way Gentiles and hated outsiders, in these two stories we see that no one, no one, no one is ever meant to be beyond the reach of God's healing and salvation. It's a storyline that I love to say has been slow cooking. From the beginning of the Bible all the way through Jesus, it begins when God tells Abraham and Sarah that through them, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And in Nazareth today, as Jesus preaches about bringing good news to the poor, release to the captives, and sight to the blind. He's picking up this storyline. He's picking up this line and saying that in the kingdom of God, the kingdom, there's no them. There's no them. There's only us. And by consistently reaching out to those on the margins, he's making sure that everybody has access to God's healing and liberation. And this message we see is so radical that it nearly gets him thrown off a cliff. And dear friends, here in 2016... When some, just like the folks in Nazareth, want us to believe in our own exceptionalism. That some of us have some special birthright, some special access to God, some special right to wall ourselves off from the needs of the world. Dear friends, it's still an incredibly radical message that just might get us thrown off a cliff as well. And at his table today, our Lord Jesus is inviting us into a deeper communion with him. For his life to become our life. for his concerns in this world to become our concerns, and for his global kingdom to become ours. He's inviting us to celebrate the, the liberation that we have experienced through his life and death and resurrection. And the day before the 4th of July, he's inviting us to renew our covenant with him, Sealed in this bread and in this cup. You know, it's been said that every Sunday when we come for worship, it's a little Easter celebration. And what this means, dear friends, is that every Sunday for us is also a little Independence Day. When I was a pastor in Chicago, our church uh, was just a few miles away from Wheaton College, sometimes called the Harvard of the evangelical world. Now, the folks here who uh, are from Houghton and from Messiah might want to debate that. But we'll, we'll set that aside. We were just a a few miles away from Wheaton College, and so uh, for first-year projects in their uh, faith class, they would have to go out and and interview pastors, especially rare bird pastors, uh, Anabaptist pastors being one of them. And they'd come and sit at the table in my office, and, and after they discovered that I didn't fly the flag that I didn't sing the national anthem and didn't serve in the military, they'd invariably ask me, don't you Mennonites love our country? I miss those talks. (laughs) And I'd say, oh, but we do. We do. We love this land And I love it even more, having been up in Maine. We love this land and its people. From California to the New York Islands. From the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. We pray for our leaders as instructed by Scripture. And we pray for God to bless this land and all other lands from sea to shining sea. And like the Jewish exiles in Babylon, we seek the welfare of the city and the land where God has placed us. Through our work in education, in business, in social organizations, we labor hard for the common good and seek to be good neighbors. And after natural disasters, we join hands with others to help those in need. But we only have one Lord, I would tell these dear students, and his name is Jesus. And when our government oversteps its God-given mandate, and that's another sermon, But in my view, the God-given mandate for government is to protect the common good and to defend the weak. When our government oversteps its mandate and starts waging war, building empire, polluting the planet, raining down death from drones we take our place with those in the Bible who gave their allegiance to God alone. We stand with Shiphrah and Puah. Remember them? Midwives who said no to Pharaoh. We stand with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who went to the furnace Instead of obeying the emperor, we stand with Queen Esther, who risked her life to prevent genocide. We stand with the three wise men, who disobeyed Herod. And we stand with Peter, who in Acts 5.29 says, we must obey God. We've got to obey God rather than any human authority. And I tell these students that we will only pledge our allegiance to Christ and his global kingdom without borders, where no one, not even someone like Naaman, is ever beyond the reach of God's healing and salvation. I invite us now to rise and to pledge again our allegiance to Christ. We're going to do this first in word. Then we're going to do it in song. And then we're going to do it in action as we come forward to our Lord's table. I invite you to turn in your bulletin to the words printed there. Please stand and let us Speak them together. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and to God's kingdom for which he died, one spirit-led people the world over, indivisible, with love and justice for all. Please remain standing for the hymn, number 411.